listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Ephesians chapter 5, keep your Bibles open there. We conclude our marriage series, When Two Become One. And we look together today at an important topic, the topic of marriage. Look with me, beginning in verse 25 again. I know it was read a moment ago, but we need to hear these words again. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in, what's that next word? Splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, In the same way, the Bible says, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Isn't that interesting? He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. Notice those words. Your translation may say cleave, hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless the reading of his perfect word. You know, we're moving in a definition of marriage within our culture that a marriage is essentially the union of two consenting adults. If two consenting adults decide to unite together, it's their business. That's the working definition of American culture's view of marriage. But as we think about that, the Bible pushed back against that view that marriage is just two consenting adults. In fact, the Bible says that the community is stabilized and blessed by a good marriage. You may think that your marriage only matters to you and that your marriage is your business. But the truth is your marriage matters to me and my marriage should matter to you. You say, Pastor, how, how how would you prove that? In a 2003 study published entitled Hardwired to Connect, it was by Dartmouth Medical School, 33 psychiatrists, doctors, sociologists, from Harvard, from Dartmouth, from Duke, not Democrat, not Republican. They did a study about our society, and this is what they discovered. In the last 40 to 50 years, teenagers, at conservative estimates, teenagers are three times more likely to take their life than they would have been in the 1950s. A 1950s teenager, as opposed to the present teenager, this is rough, the present teenagers have a 300% increase in suicide rate than their same counterpart in the 1950s. Now, I hate to depress us and show us that fact, but several factors can alleviate this in the next generation. One, according to the study, was, if you believe it, hopefully you do, that if a mother and father stay intact, mom and dad stay intact to their kids, then that teenager is two to three times less likely 
to take their life. Mom and dad stay together two to three times less likely for the teenager to commit suicide, but it gets even better. If the parents stay intact and they attend a synagogue or a church, then according to the experts, they're five to ten times less likely to take their life. If they stay intact, and if they take time to move into worship, a synagogue or a church. You see, unlike our culture, your marriage matters, and my marriage matters. It matters to society. It's not just what goes on in private bedrooms. Marriage is a societal function. It stabilizes. And I'll say it again what I said a few weeks ago. If you want a lower tax rate, anybody want a lower tax rate? Thought I may get a few amens there. Lower tax rates are led by stronger marriages. When marriages do not stay intact, then more social services have to come alongside that next generation. And so marriage matters to society. It matters to the community. Your marriage does. This community is invested. And my marriage matters to this community. And so we ought to have this community and church-wide investment. Of course, the goal here is not just to have good marriages, but to have a Christian marriage. We've been defining the Christian marriage as the permanent union of two born-again people. The permanent union of two born-again people of the opposite sex for the purpose of coming together for radical oneness. We'll see where that comes from in just a moment. Radical oneness for the encouraging and equipping of one another for the time when each appears before Jesus. I've been married to my bride for 26 years by the grace of God, and there's a day when I will relinquish her and she will relinquish me into the throne room of Jesus Christ. She is on loan for a period of time, and I'm on loan to her, for better or for worse, right, for a period of time until we appear before the Lord Jesus Christ. So my goal for us as a church is to have powerful marriages. Five truths today in Ephesians chapter 5, sort of a summary of looking at what we've done in this series. Five truths of a great marriage. First, beginning in Ephesians 5.25, God's design for marriage. Now, we've read this twice now, but I want you to notice, beginning in verse 25, and you should have an open copy of God's Word here, there are five verbs. There are five verbs in verse 25, 26, and 27. There are five verbs that really matter. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but I reiterate these five here. You'll find them on the screen. The first is, husbands, love your wives. Second, gave himself up. I know that's not truly a verb, but for those of you who are grammarians, just hang with me here. Don't write me. Third, you might sanctify her. Fourth verb, cleansed her. Last verb among these, that you might present to the church. Five verbs. Pay attention to those five. Bold those five. Underline those five. Talk to the next generation about those five. Now hold this thought for a second. Let me ask you a question. What is Jesus Christ's purpose? What is Jesus Christ's purpose when he enters into your life? When he comes into your life at conversion, what is the purpose Jesus Christ has? Now you think, well, he just, he just uh, pastor, he just wants to love me and take me to heaven. Oh, bless your naivete. I mean, you know, I'd pat you on the head if you were near me. No. You know what his purpose is when he comes into your life? When you're converted, you know what the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God want to do? Those five verbs. 
He wants to love you. He has given himself up for you. He will then sanctify you, that is, make you holy progressively, conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. He wants to cleanse you, and then in the end times, at the second coming, he will present you to himself. All his work that he's doing in you is a gift to him. That's what Jesus Christ wants to do in your life. So you see what the, you see what's happening here, don't you? Marriage is to do for each other what Christ is doing in your life. That is, Christ married his bride, and every marriage is to be a small reflection of what he's doing in us. Hey, I love this analogy that Tim Keller uses. When he marries a couple, he talks about the gem tumbler, that two stones coming together in a tumbler, and they rub off one another, and they're here to polish one another. That is, the stone, when it comes in conflict with another stone, is polished. And that's, that's the type of thing that's happening in these five verbs, that when we come into conflict with one another, there's a sharpening process, there's a sanctifying process. Now, this goes against every nerve our society thinks about marriage. This is what we think when we're single. We want to find, single people say, I want to find somebody who will love me just as I am and not try to change me. Okay? I want to love, I want somebody to love me just as I am and not try to change me. Okay? Do you, do you know you need changing? that you're not a flawless person, nor am I, that you are a flawed person. Now, if you're single here today, you're saying, well, Pastor, nobody's told me I'm flawed. It's kind of rude. It's because we're all kind to you, and we're friends with you, but we're not married to you. We're not 24-7, 365, seven days a week, because if I was in the bedroom with you, I would say something to you. If you're sharing my space, my kitchen, my finances, my checkbook, we'd have to come to blows every now and then and say, hey, you need to change. And I bet you'd come and say, you know, you're not quite all that you're cracked up to be as I see you on Sunday morning. This is not very godly here. You are a flawed person. I am a flawed person. And marriage is that conflict, sometimes a sharp conflict, where we come in together and we polish one another. Now, hopefully, this conflict in your marriage is not like the one of Winston Churchill and Lady Astor. Some of you know this story. Both of these two were in Parliament together. Lady Astor said, if I was your wife, I'd put arsenic in your tea. Churchill said, if I was married to you, if I was your husband, I'd drink the tea. (laughs) Hopefully, it's not that type of conflict. Hopefully, it's a little less sharp than that. But as I think about my own marriage, I'm not the model marriage by any respect. It's a great marriage, a good marriage, 26 years, as I said. Tracy and I are very, we're really different people. In some ways, you could say that in many respects, I'm the gas pedal, she's the brake, and that's a fantastic thing. And it really comes down, if you think about our personalities, it comes down to a date that I put together in our early marriage. See, I grew up in a very, very small community. There's one neighborhood, it's any neighborhood in this area is bigger than my whole county. And so I was wholly, just entirely impressed with all of Fort Worth. And so we were just married. I thought I'd put this great date together, be a great husband. So this is what I did. We, we worked or we were in school, whatever it was. And so we were going to go to Six Flags first. And then after we did Six Flags, this is my mistake, we did the Fort Worth Zoo. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. So, again, I'm the gas pedal. She's the brake. It's like I'm dragging her. Come on, we're having a good time. And she makes fun of me about that date to this day because had I just planned one of those two, it would have been a great time. But I thought we had to have both of those. And that's generally my personality compared to hers. She reads things. She thinks over things. She marinates over things. Lord have mercy, does she not? Yeah. I'm saying, come on, girl, let's go. We got to go. I got to have five things going at one time to be happy. And if I don't have five things going, then I'm not happy. Of course, when five things are going and I'm not doing any of the five right, and I'm complaining that I'm too busy, I don't get a lot of sympathy, right? Jim Tumbler, that's what a marriage is. You sharpen one another. The conflict hopefully is sanctifying. And through her voice and through his voice, you're hearing some of the voice of the Holy Spirit himself speaking into your life and into your marriage, making you a better person, equipping you for the day in which you'll meet the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's design for your marriage. Here's the second truth. In Ephesians chapter 5, all these are embedded right there. Husbands, husbands, love yourself. Now notice the text of Scripture doesn't doesn't say love yourself. It says love your wives, but keep going in verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Huh. It's an ancient Greek myth. A young man could not find anyone to love until one day the young man looks into a pool of water prior to mirrors and sees an image so beautiful that he cannot love anyone else. According to the Greek myth, he, because he would never love anyone all of his life, himself turned into a flower called narcissist. Today we call that person a narcissist, someone who loves themselves. It's revolting, it's a revulsion that someone loved themselves that much. And yet look at the text of Scripture again. The Bible assumes that you're going to love you. That's just, an, that's just an, a matter of fact that you're going to love you. In fact, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible's all the time trying to get you to love others like you love you. And here, the marriage, in the same way, verse 28, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Look at the logic. The logic is, husband, if you'll love your wife, when you love your wife, you're really loving you. Because marriage here on earth is like marriage, it should be in heaven. When Christ loved his church, his bride, he's presenting his bride to himself. The logic says when the Bible speaks here, when you love your wife, it's because in effect you're loving yourself. You're rewarding yourself. So let me speak to the husbands for just a second. Your future self will show up to speak to your present self and tell your present self to love your wife. And you'll be doing a favor for your future self. Because in loving your wife, you're loving yourself. There's a story that really stuck with me a couple weeks ago. A man named Ian had served overseas as a missionary. And he was talking about how to reach this particular culture. He was in a, 
He was in a land where it's illegal really to share the gospel, to do evangelism. He was in a largely Muslim area in Asia. And when you talk to missionaries, when you're just dropped off in a new place, there's no other Christians, you kind of figure out, you say, well, how do I get started at this? And this husband, missionary, and wife, missionary, were just wanting to do that. Well, until they knew what to do, she organized what so many places in Asia do. They got together to drink tea, and nine women, as well as the missionary wife, got together to drink tea every week in the neighborhood. And the women were all these religions. There was Muslim women, and there was Taos religious women. There was, there was even some Hindu, if I remember correctly, Buddhist, I should say, Buddhist. And so all these religions were there, and they were having this tea. And the husband, again, didn't know what to do. And so after a few of these, he decided, with nothing else to do, he just sort of backed into it, he'd start serving his wife and these other nine ladies. So when the tea ran out of the little cup, he'd put more tea in there. And when they needed the dishes taken care of, he'd take the dishes off. Now, these nine or ten ladies are watching this. And so after a while, these other ladies look over to the missionary wife's lady and said, would you teach us how to pray to your Christian God? Yeah, there's some Christian wives in here saying, would you teach us how to do that, right? They said, our husbands are nothing like your husband. He backed into a strategy. He told me by email this week that all nine women embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. Eight of the nine's husbands came to faith in Christ, and each of them are still serving decades later in a church and sharing the gospel to this day. All through the power, that deserves a clap, all through the power of a husband serving and loving. There's great power in that. The Bible says if you want to love your wife and love yourself even, you're to honor her and you're to love her. Here's the third. It's the promise of future love. Again, embedded right here in the text of Scripture. I want you to see, embedded in verse 31, these words. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall cleave or hold fast to. Hold fast to. You may just circle those three little words there. The word cleave is in verse 31 for you. For the word behind that, the definition is the word glue. That word is used in other Hebrew texts, it's Greek and Ephesians, but it's quoting a Genesis chapter 2. It is the word glue. It's used that way. Now, here's what the Bible is saying. When you are of age and you leave mom and dad, you are to be glued to her. Glued. Not a temporary glue, but a gorilla glue. Right? And what happens when that happens? Well, when you are glued together, you're making a vow. I do this all the time, did just yesterday. Married a couple. And there's that part of the ceremony that you may not be thinking, but you're saying a vow. Now, what is a vow? Well, a vow is something I'll do in the future. If I were just to say to any old girl that I love you now, that's called dating. In fact, if I want to be engaged, I could say I love you now. But a vow in a wedding is, I will love you in the future. This is the promise of future love. And your marriage and society's marriages are built on this vow. 
So when I stood next to Tracy and she stood next to me, and when you said whatever you said in your marriage, if you're married, you're promising to marry and to love in the future. And again, it's not when she's good looking and young and you're good looking and young and everything's working and you've got lots of career opportunities. There's lots of people who will do that then. But when she's suffering from dementia and you're struggling because of depression and you can't find work and all the difficulties and challenges that come with life, it's the promise of future love. And it comes from the word there in verse 31, back in Genesis chapter 2. Because love is more than an emotion. Love is making a commitment. I love what the playwright Thomas Wilder said. I didn't marry you, quote, I didn't marry you because you were perfect. I didn't even marry you because I loved you. I married you because you gave me a promise. That promise made up for your faults, and the promise I gave you made up for mine. Two imperfect people got married, and it was the promise that made the marriage. And when our children are growing up, it wasn't a house that protected them. It wasn't our love that protected them. It was that promise. And I like what Lewis Mead says here, and I'll apply it to me. My wife has loved at least five different men, and they're all me. I was very different 26 years ago than I am presently, and God willing, if I get another 26 years, I'll be very different then. You're to cleave to one another. You're to hold fast to one another. Here again, the vows that many of you took. I, Scott, take thee, Tracy, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for worse, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. According to God's holy ordinance, I pledge my life to you. You didn't say that, just the two of you. Many of you found a pastor or a preacher, and you found even a place like this. And you did that because you felt it was important to say it to God. You're to cleave, you're to be glued. It's the promise of future love. Fourth great truth in Ephesians chapter 5, found in verse 33, wives, respect your husbands. Notice that in a generation where we're told that the genders are interchangeable, they're just plug and play. She can do his part and he can do her part and there's nothing different. We can wear the same clothes and the biology doesn't matter. The text of Scripture gives different verbs for him than it does her. He's told to love her. She's told to respect him. I'm not going to say much there. I'm going to move on quickly, but that's his love language. That's his love language. That's his love language. He wants respect. As one of their species, males, I think like them. I'm speaking for them. He wants your respect. He needs your respect. And men, you've got to earn that. In fact, verse 33 comes at the culmination of everything, verse 25 down through verse 32. I bet, there's some exceptions to this, I bet 
if you did a darn good job in verses 25 through 32, you'd probably get some respect in verse 33. You'll find some exceptions. I know you will. Wives, respect your husbands. And then the last, the last great truth found in Ephesians chapter 5, the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. Marriage is a mystery. There's more to marriage that meets the eye. And marriage is in some sense a completion in a profound sense. But she will not always get you and you will not always get her. You're not always going to be soulmates. Again, there's going to be some sharp conflict. But it's as if two chemicals were sitting on the shelf. When the chemical reaction of those coming together, there's a third entity. And they're put together in a profound way. There's an intermingling. There's a mystery there. And then Paul writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm speaking about Christ in the church. I want to conclude this series with a simple analogy. I've enjoyed watching baseball more in the last week or so. I'm not a big baseball fan. A lot of you are. Back in the 80s at my grandparents' house, TBS was on a lot. You either watch Harry Carey and the Cubs, or you could turn over and watch some Dale Murphy and watch the Atlanta Braves. And so when the Braves made it to the World Series, I thought for sure, here's another epic meltdown. Here's another Atlanta team going to go up 28-3, like the Falcons did against the Patriots, and they're going to lose again. And so I watched with a healthy bit of skepticism as they finally completed it in six games. And I thought, good for Atlanta, good for Georgia, that they got that. And as I think about marriage and think about baseball, every guy that gets up to the plate wants to hit a home run. As one who collected baseball cards, as a kid who put posters up on the wall of great athletes, you don't put posters and cards up of people who hit sacrificial bunts. You just don't do that, right? And yet every so often when you come up to plate, there's a man on first, or there's maybe a two on second and third, everything in you wants to hit it out of the park. Everything in you wants to come up to the plate and just swing with all your might. Sort of the Robert Redford, the, the natural, if you remember, the Roy Hobbs. But what if you look down at the third base coach and the third base coach says, we don't need you to swing away. We need you to go up there and take the bat and lay down a bunt. And you think to yourself, but I don't want a bunt. My contract doesn't go up if I bunt. Kids don't call my name and ask for autographs if I bunt. But you do it anyway. And you hit just a little dribbler and you move the player from first into second, or maybe from second into third. Now, why do you do that? You lay down a sacrificial bunt because that's what the team needs. And that's what marriage is. You sacrifice for her, and she sacrificed for you. Because that's what the team needs. Because it's not about you winning or her winning about us winning. I want to speak to the church family for just a minute. Some of you have got some experience on you. Some of that's good and some of that's not so good. You've got some 
pieces about your marriage you'd like to do over and you've got some pieces that God blessed you and you did really well. You need to speak these truths into your family. We're living in a day and time when marriage is defined as just two consenting adults. It doesn't make any difference what gender they are. This is not going to end well for American culture. You don't get to break God's rules for long term. It's going to come back. It's your voice that needs to speak to the next generation. You need to take your kids. You need to take your grandkids inside and say, this is what I would do over. And connect it back to the narrative of Scripture. Because when it comes from you, it will mean so much more than if it comes from a guy like me. They'll hear that and they'll know that. And you will have a generation that will hear the truth and God willing align their lives with the truth of Scripture. But you know the number one thing I have for you this morning is not that you're married or even married happily. It's that you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is going to have single people and married people and hell will have happily married people. There's not a test on how good your marriage is before you get into one or the other. It will ask you what you do with Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head quietly. Father in heaven, your people are before you. We want to give you, Lord, our attention. We need your presence. We need you here today, Lord. Because an ounce of your presence fixes a society of wrong. We need to feel you and know you and have our lives aligned to your truth, Lord. We need to adjust our lives to conform to you and to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I want to pray that your blessing over the marriages in this church, in this city, in this community, God, we need it. Birdville School District needs it. Northwest School District needs it. Keller needs it. HEB School District needs it, Father. We pray that you would bless these marriages. Bless them emotionally. Bless them with the glue that's spoken of there in verse 31. Bless them, Father, financially. Bless them spiritually, Father. You love marriage. You call upon us to honor marriage. So, Lord, we know you're in our corner when we align ourselves with your truth. And today, as we pray with heads bowed and eyes closed, perhaps you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an opportunity for you today to know him. You can pray quietly when I'm praying out loud. You pray something like this. Father, my life's broken. Even if you're online, Father, my life's broken. And I need you. I need your son, Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid to pray something like this. I've made a mess of my life. And this preacher says, that you love me enough to fix me. So I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe he died for me. I believe he was buried for me. I believe he rose again for me. And I turn away from my way and turn toward you. Anybody can pray this, the youngest to the oldest. And I give my life to you. I'm not ashamed to be called a Christian. Pray those words of the Lord. I'm not ashamed to be called a Christian. Thank you for saving me. 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.